You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, April 22, 2020. Later in the program, I talk to Matt Hauser, research scientist at Indiana University, about the Hoosier Life Survey. The survey gauges public opinions on climate change in Indiana. Also coming up in the next half hour, your weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware, hosted by Richard Fish. But first, your local headlines. Thirty-one more deaths were added to Indiana's coronavirus dashboard. 394 new cases were confirmed. Overall deaths are at 661 people. Total cases are at 12,907. Governor Eric Holcomb announced Tuesday that in spite of the growing numbers, he is working on the early stages of reopening the state. Holcomb said in his Tuesday afternoon briefing, quote, We're going to be informed by the numbers as they are before us. We're not going to try to get around the numbers or make any decisions prematurely. This is going to be a safety-first approach, end quote. IndyStar reports the governor is working directly with businesses to set guidelines for when they do open their doors. More restrictions will likely be lifted in early May. For WFHB News, I'm Cade Young. President of Indiana University Health, Brian Shockney, said IU Health is performing plasma research and experimentation during a COVID-19 press conference on April 17th. We are doing some experimenting downtown through our, uh, our IRB, our review board, regarding some of this early evidence on plasma and giving this to our, some of our sickest patients. And so those who have been, uh, who've recovered from COVID, we're asking that they would donate plasma at our centers um, and that they would uh, allow us to use that to care for patients. Shockney said IU Hospital has performed over 2,000 virtual clinic visits and encourages those who may be experiencing symptoms to utilize the virtual screening app. Shockney said case managers are in direct contact with nursing homes to protect the residents. We, as we discharge, we, uh, if there are pa- patients, and there are a few that, that come to us, um, we know about that. They let us know about that. And then we follow them back uh, through virtual visits and through uh, continuous contact with them daily at the nursing homes when they go back. So uh, again, uh, we, we in this, uh, with IU Health have been blessed with that uh, population health program for two years where we have full-time case managers that work with our nursing homes and then monthly and quarterly meetings with all of the nursing homes who are part of that program. Shockney said the population health management program has performed monthly check-ins with all participating local nursing homes for two years. Shockney said there are two types of COVID-19 tests, one test for the virus and the other for antibodies. 
He said non-symptomatic testing research is still being conducted. There is some research in this area, but there is no scientific consensus uh, in individuals who have recovered. And actually, there is some uh, evidence in other countries where uh, it, it acts differently. Um, so someone who, like with the common cold, we can get the common cold, and then two weeks later after recovery, we can get it again. And there's some evidence around that here. So uh, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, work going on. I will say there is lots of research dollars and, and, and very smart brains, smarter than me, um, uh, much smarter that are going into this uh, to help us here. But it's going to be a while before we have testing, I believe, uh, and every all indications I can see that are really we can hang our hat on and say uh, we can test people and know for sure whether they can go in the workplace unprotected, without social distancing, um, and uh, not be exposed to the virus. Shockney said testing is focused on those who have symptoms. Monroe County Emergency Management Director Allison Moore said the county continues to collect homemade face masks. She said donations are dwindling, but the need for masks continues to grow. Up next, WFHB news correspondent Katrine Bruner gives her report from home. Announced Friday, April 14th, from a news release, the annual Taste of Bloomington for 2020, set to happen on Saturday, June 20th, is officially canceled due to the public safety threat of the coronavirus. The Taste of Bloomington has been one of the main attractions for summer activities in Bloomington since it began in 1982, with its live music, local restaurant food, drinks, and activities. Taste director Talisha Kopuk stated in the press release, quote, We stay at home today so that we may celebrate together next summer. Continuing on to say, please mark June 19th, 2021 on your calendar, end quote. Also mentioned was the importance of supporting local businesses during this time, urging citizens to continue to help out their town by purchasing locally. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. The Monroe County Election Board approved five polling and voting sites during their April 20th meeting. Election Supervisor Karen Wheeler said all sides have not yet given permission to use their facilities. Um, the one in the south would be Indian Creek. These are all just suggestions, but Indian Creek Fire Station. The east side would be Sherwood Oaks, or it could be Benford. You know, that's either one. If Sherwood Oaks couldn't or wouldn't, they, at this point, they have said yes but then we'd have the school. North would be Genesis or maybe University Elementary. And then West would be probably the high school. They have probably agreed to do that, uh, but it could also be St. John's. And then Central would be Election Central. Wheeler said fewer locations could cut down on volunteer training and would increase volunteer and employee health safety. She said the county is seeing few volunteers, but would be able to run these five sites. Board member Carolyn Vanderweel supported utilizing school facilities. Schools are a good choice right now because of the fact that they're closed. Um, a lot of schools could even leave that room empty for two weeks and then come through and clean and disinfect it to even reduce um, that information. But I'm happy if, if the churches are willing to, to have us do that as well. I mean, I, I think Sherwood Oaks is a really convenient location for the east side. They've got a huge parking lot. It's a, it's a nice site to get in and out of in terms of, of people being able to, to vote there. 
Vanderweel said one letter should be sent to each registered community member, including a precinct notice and absentee ballot. Wheeler said the county has equipment to print ballots from the five polling sites. However, the election board strongly encourages community members to vote by mail. Up next, WFHB News Director Kate Young talks to Matt Hauser, a research scientist at Indiana University, who co-led a survey to find out what Hoosiers think about climate change. talking to Matt Hauser, research scientist at Indiana University, about the Hoosier Life Survey. Now, this survey is one of the most comprehensive statewide public opinion surveys of environmental change. So, Matt, first off, can you explain exactly what the Hoosier Life Survey is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's really a result of of myself and, and others at the Environmental Resilience Institute, most notably uh, Eric Sandweiss, Beth Gaisley, James Shanahan, Heather Reynolds, um, and uh, Lizzie Grennan-Browning. Our effort to be able to document how people across the state and also within uh, regions or areas uh, within the state feel about, experience, deal with climate change, uh, both at their household level, but also what they want uh, their communities to undertake. So our intention in being able to do this was to document those those attitudes to get a sense of sort of what's the pulse of of Hoosiers on this issue? Mm -hmm. What are the risk factors we're seeing based on what people are doing and not doing? And then how can we use these results to uh, help policymakers, help communities, help cities inform what actions they want to take going forward to be able to deal with some of the risks that come with climate change? So let's backtrack a little bit. Um, so walk me back to the initial idea of the survey. <clears throat> the, the initial idea actually predates my time at Indiana University. The Environmental Resilience Institute was uh, funded and, and began due to the Grand Challenge Initiative uh, prepared for environmental change at the university. And part of the, the founding, I would say, of that institute was was this you know, incubation of an idea for a public opinion survey about how the state felt about climate change. Eric Sandweiss really was the person uh, pushing, from my understanding, at that time for this project, and he, he led the original development of the idea. And that was you know, about three years ago. Two years ago, I was hired, and I came on with some experience about general public climate change opinion in the Midwest and, and survey research experience. And so I joined that team and, and Eric and I eventually ended up co-leading the survey. So we really have seen this as a foundational research component to the Institute's uh, overall goal, which is, which is to be an interdisciplinary institute engaging with sort of all dimensions of climate change, but to have a, a big component of that being a human dimensions. Uh, where we're understanding the, the human's causal role and how we can engage with people across the state to better address these issues. Now, walk me through uh, the process on how you went about conducting the study. In other words, what was the methodology of this survey? Absolutely. Um, well, I want to, uh, with that question, note the efforts of the Center for Survey Research 
at Indiana University. We worked closely with them throughout the entire process. Um, and they were, they were just wonderful, um, helped us with the, the questionnaire design, our, our sampling strategy, the processing the data, you name it, they, they were our partners in that. And so um, really grateful for, for their help. We uh, did what we feel like was a, a, the gold standard of collecting data. Uh, we used what's called a mixed mode design, which basically means that we provided multiple options for people to fill out the survey. We sent mailers out to 10,000 households across the state and first said, hey, would you want to fill this out online? And then bugged people again and said, hey, if you didn't fill it out online, would you want to try that again? And we followed up with people who didn't fill it out online, giving them a paper copy. We know that really about 71% of, only about 71% of Hoosiers have broadband internet access. So yeah, and a lot of surveys in, in the country rely on these online methods for obvious reasons. They're, they're cheap, they're, they're easy, but we miss, particularly in states like Indiana that have lower internet coverage, a significant percentage of the population that doesn't have high-speed internet. And, and that is especially true for rural residents of the state who uh, I think only about 41% of rural Hoosiers from the last census had access to high-speed internet as wow. compared to, as I think it's like 90 some in urban areas. That might have changed, uh, but the, the point is if we don't do a mail survey that has a paper component, we are probably not going to access a large enough or a representative population in the state. So we followed those procedures to make sure we really got everyone's views. So what were some of your key findings um, in this survey? And I know there's plenty, but I just wanted to get to some of the, some of the greatest hits, if you will. Yeah, um, you're right. There are, there are plenty of um, key findings and ones that I could go into. Mm. I'll, I'll say that one of the ones that, that stands out to me was the number of Hoosiers that just simply believe climate change is happening. 75% of, of people that we surveyed felt that climate change was happening, sort of regardless of the causes. And, and to me, that's a, a wonderful jumping off point. Part of the motivation for this survey was to not get too caught up in sort of the divisive components of, of climate change and more say, how can we get people acting to be prepared for the impacts, whether they believe it's happening or not? And whenever we see that such a large uh, percentage of people feel that it's going on, uh, regardless of what's causing it, we can expect that there's probably a greater likelihood that they're interested in already doing or at least open to some type of preparedness or resilience activity. So that to me was, was very exciting. We also saw a really high percentage of the, the general public in Indiana interested in solar panels being installed on their house. Um, that was extremely exciting to me. And, and particularly, we, we looked at that across community type. So we asked respondents to say, what type of community do you feel like you live in, rural, uh, suburban, small town, or urban? And we actually saw, you know, pretty even levels of interest in having solar panels installed on your house across those areas. Uh, roughly about 60%, I think, was the highest in urban areas. And then uh, if I remember correctly, 
57 to 58% of rural Hoosiers had either already installed solar panels or were interested in installing solar panels. And that's despite the fact that those two groups have vastly different perspectives on whether or not humans are causing climate change. Yeah. Uh, so again, again, it points to this optimism to me that people are interested in acting. Definitely. And I, I did see that based on the survey responses, you know, Indiana residents generally show a willingness to engage in support and preparedness for climate change. Did that surprise you at all? We, we had done a, a slightly smaller, people would call it a pilot survey, sort of to get a, a general idea around this time last year mm-hmm. and had gotten some, some optimistic res- results from that. Um, suggesting a similar thing that Hoosiers might be willing to act. And, and this survey really just cements it for us. Um, it's, it's clear that not everyone is necessarily on the same page about, again, some of the topics that feel a bit more divisive in climate change, like scientific consensus on the issue, humans' causal role. But as you, as you say, what we tend to find is a lot of the solutions uh, whether or not they are specific to dealing with climate change or just things that, uh, in general, people might be interested in doing, seem to get a lot of support. And so that is really, that's something that's very interesting and compelling to me, particularly because it suggests, going back to my point about being able to offer these findings to policymakers, that if uh, we're able to incentivize or enable people to take some of these practices, we could see widespread adoption uh, that would make this state a lot more resilient to the coming impacts we expect to see as early as 2050. Kind of with that point, you know, with the solar panels, you know, if you incentivize people both in rural areas and in more urban areas, both utilizing solar panels. So I think some of those incentives, even though attitudes are different among rural and urban populations, kind of saw the same results with maybe the financial incentives. Yeah, absolutely. My my sense was from from that finding, you know, we had worded that question in a really specific way, where we asked, uh, "Do you want to use solar panels to reduce carbon dioxide emissions?" Because we're really interested in in whether or not putting some type of, of specific focus on mitigating climate change, which implies humans' causal role, would would shape attitudes or levels of interest in it. And even despite that you know, we didn't see a difference. Now, I suspect that uh, people might be interested that don't believe climate change is caused by humans in solar panels for uh, a multitude of reasons. But as you, as you point, it, uh, point out, really, sort of like if we, if we offer them, people will come for their own reasons. It sort of doesn't matter why they're adopting them. We could still get a significant amount of benefits. Now, I do want to note that doesn't mean we should necessarily give up on trying to convince people about the reality of of humans' causal role in Mm -hmm. climate change, which is no doubt a a scientific reality. Of course. Uh, The need to act is immediate. Mm -hmm. And the survey points to the fact that we might not get strong resistance or we are unlikely to get strong resistance for a, a number of key strategies that will help us begin to act now. Okay, so kind of shifting gears here, lower income residents are likely to be affected perhaps the most by uh, climate change. So I was wondering if you could touch on this a little bit about your findings with um, lower income residents and how they might be affected um, perhaps a little more by, by the reality of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. We, we know from studies in the international context and 
generally research on environmental justice, which just sort of points at the fact that environmental risks that uh, span from climate change to pollution don't affect everyone equally. Uh, people that are already uh, existing in, in demographic categories that make them more at risk for other things, uh, such as being a racial minority, uh, lower income, are much more likely to experience those environmental risks than other people. Uh, climate change in Indiana is, is no different, I suspect, although I'm not aware of specific studies that, that touch on that. I will note uh, Gabe Filippelli at uh, Indiana University uh, at Purdue University is doing some wonderful work in terms of uh, who is exposed to water pollution in the city and showing some distributional effects in terms of income and race. But back to uh, our survey, what, what we show is that people in lower income categories across the state are more likely than people in higher income categories to expect to be personally harmed a great deal from climate change. And so basically that builds on our existing knowledge that these, these groups of people are very likely objectively more at risk from climate change uh, due to pre-existing conditions, due to pre-existing exposure to pollution, due to where they live, due to an inability to adjust on the fly as things come up uh, because of lower resources. And they actually recognize that and perceive themselves to be at more at risk at higher rates than, than people who are likely less objectively at risk because of their resources and positions. And so again, it just, it really highlights a, a bit of a sad reality that people that are already struggling are gonna struggle more from climate change and they're aware of it. Uh, to me, again, this finding points to the need to open up some policy avenues to help uh, these individuals in, in communities that uh, are lacking necessary resources begin to adapt to climate change. The slightly higher levels of, of personal concern we see here is suggestive that if we offer them the resources, they're, they're more likely to implement them and use them in ways to uh, address this personal risk that they're more likely to feel. Up next, your weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware, hosted by Richard Fish. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know That song was a big hit in 1942, 
and it's back with a modern meaning. The singer is a young British girl named Vera Lynn, who was knighted for her work and is now Dame Vera Lynn, 103 years old. And like you and I, she's keeping to herself these days. How are you doing? Staying home all the time can be very stressful, and lots of people feel frustrated, lonely, and afraid. But remember that a hundred years ago, people coped with a much worse pandemic, and in those days they didn't have the Internet. In fact, they didn't even have radio. Today, we're much more connected, and that helps. But watch out for people who prey on your fears. The latest example is a text message people have been getting nationwide, a nasty fraud that says, Someone who came in contact with you tested positive or has shown symptoms for COVID-19 and recommends you self-isolate or get tested. And there's a link to click, but don't do it. And don't be a news junkie. Worrying about things you can't change is never a good idea, and nowadays it can be downright dangerous. If you or someone you love is having trouble keeping it together in isolation, do stay connected. Use your phone. Use the Internet. There are a lot of suggestions out there for ways to cope with boredom, frustration, fear, and negative thoughts. Learn something. Create something clean things. You know those things you've been putting off until you get around to it? Well, we've been issued a round to it, so let's get rolling. When one door closes, another door opens, and you've got the chance to look for things you can do, instead of obsessing over things you can't. Knowing a little history can help a lot, because it's good to remember that things have been a whole lot worse and then got better again. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Katrine Bruner, Cade Young, and Sydney Foreman, in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Better Beware was produced by Richard Fish. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Hearabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 